When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, August 18, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Fed Day. Minutes dropped at 2 p.m. Eastern Time today. I'm joined by one of our favorite guests on the Real Vision Daily Briefing, Darius Dale of 42 Macro. We're going to talk about those minutes and everything happening in markets. But first, here's the closing numbers. Uh, It looks like markets sold off uh, rather broadly today. S&P 500 off 1.07% closing the day at 4,400, spot 33. Looks like some stops there. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average off over 1% on the day, 1.08%, closing out the day at at 34,961. Finally, the VIX up almost three points, actually now up three points as it settles here, uh, up over 20, almost to 21, 20 spot 91 on the VIX. The big story of the day today, obviously, the Fed. The Fed appears to be signaling a taper to begin later in this year uh, of the $120 billion of monthly asset purchases by the central bank. The minutes discuss, quote, substantial further progress criterion being satisfied. Maybe, maybe because it's the Fed and the language is Delphic. uh, And we are here to unpack that right now with Darius Dale. Darius, welcome back. Ash, it's always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Always great to have you here, but especially great to have you here today on the day when Fed minutes drop. What are you thinking when you look at this report, at this minutes? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, as most Fed minutes go, they're typically snooze fest. Most of them are like watching paint dry on top of paint dry. Uh, The only thing I really gleaned from this uh, statement is the Bullard, who's not a voter this year, uh, St. Louis Fed President Bullard, uh, who will be a voter next year, actually uh, came out or at least had a discussion last uh, in the last meeting that he believes tapering should be concluded by the end of Q1 of next year. Um, so obviously that might you know that that contributed to throwing markets for a loop, you know, particularly into the close today. We have you know what's interesting about today is that you've had a couple of days in a row now where we saw. Uh, some market weakness, but really strong institutional buying into the close. That's typically where most institutions price their, um, you know, price their bid S. And today was a complete reversal of that. So it probably portends uh, some more weakness uh, as we close out the week. I mean, what do you make of Ballard's statement? He's basically saying, hey, inflation is running too hot right now. We need to start pulling back the accommodation and we need to do it fast and furious. Yeah, no. So what I, what my takeaway from the statement is that he's signaling that he, at least he, does not believe the Fed has inflation under control. Um, I've heard several times over the course of the week from different investors over different programs that uh, the statement that you know inflation is transitory or, or you know we got it under control is the sort of you know the redux of, of subprime is contained from 2007. Um, you know anyone who's been in the business back then uh, understands and remembers that. I disagree. Uh, I definitely don't believe that it, it is anything like. What we saw in subprime, um, you know, inflation, again, we've talked about this 
uh, for several months now. Inflation is likely to remain high and sticky over the next 12-month time horizon, mostly driven by a recovery in things like owner's equivalent of rent and shelter. But the broad balance of inflation, uh, the sort of the components underneath the hood, are likely to show persistent disinflation, you know, starting in July and all the way through the middle of next year. And so if we're right on those forecasts, if our models are correct, uh, Bullard's sort of out there on his lonesome, sort of spooking the market the way he's doing. Yeah, and we should point out, I think you might have said it already, uh, James Bullard from the St. Louis Fed, yeah. not a voting member today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talking about that, talking about that framework, we've talked a little bit about what the new news here is today. Darius, bring us up to speed. What is your broad-based model telling us right now? How do you see the big picture, 50,000-foot view of this market and this economy? Yeah, so, so taking a step back from the immediate term risk to the market from just, you know, op operations express expiry this Friday and, and, you know, potentially see some weakness into the early part of next week. You know, the market itself is not in a position, in our opinion, to have a meaningful correction. Um, and that's a, that's sort of a, a very aggressive statement. So let me unpack the various components of that. Um, there's a chart making the rounds today on Bloomberg, a uh, chart from Bloomberg showing that every time the S&Ps had a doubling off of a, a cyclical low, it's had a meaningful correction, and this is going all the way back to 2007, 2008. And so that chart's making the rounds now, so everyone's quite nervous. Um, but we, we can observe that nervousness through the, a variety of, of ways through our quantitative process at 42 Macro. Uh, so the most obvious of which is the relationship between near-term implied volatility at the money put implied volatility relative to, to near-term realized volatility, 10-day, 20-day, 30-day realized volatility. And for pretty much every sector or style factor, in the U.S. equity market that is sort of, you know, that I would characterize as being rate sensitive or defensive has an implied volatility premium of 50 to 100 plus percent. So the market is extremely nervous about the prospects for a taper tantrum and how that may filter into through to equity prices uh, to the downside. Um, you know, that in, from my perspective, that limits the amount of downside we can ultimately see. Um, and when the most important thing that we would argue is limiting downside at the current juncture is the fact that no one's taken a lot of risk. So, you know, one of the things that differentiates our, our work at 42 Macro from a lot of other macro services is that we have a very quantitatively oriented market regime now casting process. And there are a few things about that now casting process that are important for investors to, to know today. One, we are in Goldilocks. Goldilocks is, is positive for the market on a trending basis. Number two, the system itself has a considerable degree, we call it our global macro risk matrix, there's a considerable degree of signaling neutrality right now. You look at the 42 different market indicators that we have baked into that model, more than half of them, 23 to be specific, are neutral. So from my perspective, there's not a lot of risk taking being done on the buy side because you don't have the CTAs and the pure quants chasing the amount of momentum that they typically would when they're at peak leverage. And then lastly, the implied volatility relationship between realized volatility, we use that as a proxy for buy side net leverage. And that continues to suggest that there's a buy side operating within a very tight band of, of, net, of net leverage, i.e. their longs minus their shorts. So there's not a lot of sort of positioning oriented risk in the market that would catalyze a more meaningful correction. So anything we see, you know, to close out this week and to start next week should be on the order of the, you know, the minus down, the down three to down 5% variety that we've seen all year, in my opinion. Yeah, so you talk about the Goldilocks scenario, the Goldilocks grid quadrant that we're in right now. That effectively means that you've got uh, you've got stable growth and, and modest inflation. Give us a little bit of a take on what your numbers are uh, in the simplest sense that are giving you that impression from this market. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we, <clears throat> the economy itself here in the month of August is transitioning from what we call reflation. That's where growth and inflation are accelerating on a trending basis. And we're using the OECD composite leading index time series for, to, as a proxy for growth. And we're using headline CPI as, as, as the inflation proxy. Uh, that trend has been persistent all the way through the, since the spring of last year. It's been a persistent string of ours, reflation for ours. Um, that we're transitioning in the month of September, at least our models are currently projecting that to what we call deflation. Now, again, you, you always sort of you know, uh, add to the viewers that when I say deflation, I don't necessarily mean outright negative price declines. What I mean is just our nomenclature in that, in that grid regime process for growth and inflation slowing on a trending basis. So um, it is our expectation that you know, we've already seen a decent amount of slowing, particularly from the consumer goods economy. We've seen some slowing from leading indicators like consumer confidence, uh, the manufacturing PMIs, um, and things of that nature. However, we think by the time we get into September, and particularly as we progress throughout uh, the fourth quarter, it'll be pretty clear and consistent that growth, high-frequency economic indicators in the U.S. are decelerating on a trending basis. Yeah, you know, one of the most interesting things about your model, Darius, is you talk about acceleration and deceleration. You are very much interested in watching the second derivative, the rate of change on these, rather than just the absolute values. What's that telling us right now? Yeah, no, like, like I said, the economy is, again, in this sort of transition moment. And that's part of the reason why I think there's so much angst being priced into the market. There's so much angst across the buy side in terms of a limited degree of risk taking. That angst is a confluence of, okay, we're now, if you're paying attention, we're now all starting to see signs of growth decelerating, while inflation still, for those who don't look at the world through second derivative lens, is still really high. I mean, I'm a second derivative guy all the way, and it's still very high. You know, <laughs> I can have a conversation about inflation being high uh, to the caps come up. And so that angst associated with the economy, you know, certainly if you go back to, let's say, the beginning of the year, even as recently as three or four months ago, prior to the Delta variant uh, proliferation, you know, investors expected you know, the, the, the economy and asset markets to be at a very different place now. And part of what's happening, in my opinion, and we talked about this before, is the pandemic is becoming an endemic. You know, we've out, the, uh, the Biden administration is outlining their program to start to uh, implement booster shots for all vaccinated adults uh, as of September 20th. And to my perspective, from my perspective, that is a negative signal because it means we may never truly really emerge back to the world we knew in 2019. And that has a tremendous amount of implications for the valuations of a lot of cyclical sectors and style factors, you know, the types of companies that need the economy to be extremely robust for them to consistently put up the numbers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, this is a really important point, uh, your view of the pandemic and what impact it's going to have uh, on the economy. By the way, I'm looking at the comments. They're absolutely lighting up right now, uh, as I knew they would, talking about Fed uh, minutes coming out and the commentary uh, about what's going to happen with the taper, when the taper happens. Uh, and so it's interesting, Darius, one of the questions we got, or one of the comments, I should say, uh, is dumb it down for us. And and what I want to ask you is, you know, this view uh, of the, in your view, uh, the impact from this endemic COVID putting downward pressure on growth, this explains in a certain sense, I guess, uh, your view 
that we really have transitory inflation, that it's not going to be something that's going to be in the economy uh, for a long period of time. It's a blip caused by the reopening, in your view. I don't want to mischaracterize it. Uh, and then that begins to come off the table as the opening, reopening trade slides off. Is that roughly a fair representation of the way you see these markets? Yeah, absolutely. So you can make the case, and I'm amenable to the case, that a economy that is sort of operating at least in an endemic for at least the next you know, foreseeable future is likely to have a reduction in supply. Labor's, uh, you, know, you won't get back to peak labor force participation. You're still going to have supply chain disruptions all around the world. So you can make the case that that's very inflationary. However, when you actually look at the demand component of what that actually means for incomes in the absence of all the federal income support we received as consumers all throughout last year and throughout this year, I believe it was on the order of 30 to 40 percent of U.S. GDP in terms of just dumping money into consumers' pockets. If we don't have that consistent demand push, then we're not going to see the rates of inflation that we see. We're talking about a much more disinflationary environment than I think investor consensus, you know, particularly the the camp of investors that I hear, and I, I hear this all the time, it sounds crazy to me, but yeah, the, the 10 years got to be at 2% by year end. It's like, why? How? The economy is decelerating. Inflation is decelerating. Why in the heck would bond yields go up? That, that there's, no, there's not a lot of market history for that dynamic to occur, those dynamics to occur simultaneously. And so if we were talking about this thing shifting to an endemic, we really have to reset our expectations for growth. We have to reset our expectations for inflation. And we ultimately need to reset our expectations for the pace and timing of tapering and what that likely means for the forward interest rate environment, you know, when we talk about late 2022 or 2023. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking here at the comments. This is a devastating three word comment from Daniel A. Three words, quote, they can't taper. Yeah, look, I mean, they should not taper, in my opinion. Um, it's not that, you know, I, I'm certainly not a a QE junkie, personally, I would prefer to see open in every markets. So I think we're way past that point of no return on that, unfortunately. Uh, but that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. I do believe it is premature to taper. I mean, Jay Powell has been steadfast about sort of the, you know, the, the, the inflation being transitory. And so right when you get to the point where you need to make the call, they're starting to waver. Obviously, we've we, set Clarita out there, Bullets all on his lonesome. But he's Bullets Braveheart. He's, he's Jon Snow leading the pack. Um, in terms of you know keeping that taper talk elevated, and to me, I think it's it's a it's misguided because we all know the Fed has plenty of ammunition to stop inflation when it needs to. Like the the only tools they have to stop inflation are the kinds of tools that hurt economic growth by the lens of of of, of liquidity tightening and credit creation. And so it's no matter what they do to to combat inflation, they're going to have to harm the economy in that process. So this concept that we need to you know, taper very marginally and get to a place where we can have these very pretty, you know, beautiful interest rate hikes and everything's going to be fine. That's a, a nonsensical comment or expectation to begin with. If inflation is truly going to be out of hand, they can fix it overnight. That's basically what Paul Volcker did. And, you know, Jay Powell yesterday was, um, admit, you know, sort of um, uh, tipping his cap to uh, uh, Dr. Volcker um, for his, you know, ability to tame inflation or, or what he did to tame inflation. And we all know what that playbook looks like. And so to me, right. it's, it's not really about, you know, can they taper, should they taper? It's more about what are you guys even talking about? We still have the, the, the employment to population ratio for 25 to 54, kind of the prime working age population is, is only at 77.8%, I believe. You know, before the pandemic, it was north of 80. You know, so we still have millions of Americans trapped out of the labor force. We still have a global economy that is operating at multiple speeds. All of them are slower than U.S. and Europe. And so it's 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 unclear to me 
why the Fed is in such a hurry to taper asset purchases and really get to the place where they can start diving interest rates. Because again, if you believe, like Jay Powell has claimed to believe, that inflation is transitory, then they should be sitting on their hands here because they could ultimately cause a big market event uh, here in the, in the latter part of this year that, you know, in the context of everything talk going on in, in D.C. from fiscal policy, which we can unpack later, if they cause a market event, they're going to have undone a lot of the progress that they've done to get us here, both in asset market terms, but also in terms of the economic recovery. So your view is almost, hey, why are we even having this conversation? If you look at the data, in your view, it seems that the growth is not where it needs to be. Inflation is not where it needs to be. Why are we even talking about the taper when you see such need uh, for the patient to get these uh, cash infusions, so to speak? Yeah, if I was running the Federal Reserve, we wouldn't be having these conversations. You have a lot of internal conversations about some of the statements these uh, the Fed regional Fed presidents are making externally. I think it's a ridiculous. Uh, I think what the markets are, are telling us, with bond yields being at 127 on the 10 year, um, every time we have a discussion about tapering, the market has a you know three to five percent correction. I think the market is telling us that this is a very very uneasy time to have a withdrawal of liquidity. We don't have the Delta variant uh, uh, sort of lockdown. We don't have, we, have, we don't have to figure it out. By the way, when it's not Delta, it could be Theta, Zeta, Lambda. I mean, we're going to run out of Greeks. This is what's happening. And viruses mutate. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And maybe we had misguided expectations as investors and, and, and people, as humans, um, that this was going to be all over once we get those needles stuck in our arm. And the reality is, through a confluence of, of political resistance, but also through the confluence of the virus mutating itself, it's, it's actually not going to be over as quickly as we thought it would be. And so ultimately, you know, I feel like the, the Fed is on this tapering timeline that's associated with yesterday's view of the world in terms of getting the economy fully recovered. And it's not necessarily reacting to the incremental high frequency data that we're seeing slow. And also it's not necessarily reacting to, uh, you know, this pandemic turning into an endemic from a, from a you know, sort of policy response perspective. Yeah, we'll never run out of Greek letters. It'll be like an Excel spreadsheet. We'll just go to column AA, AB. It'll be like a fraternity house uh, if this becomes endemic. I mean, we say it, talk about this lightly, but it's actually a horrifying scenario. This continued mutation, the inability uh, of, uh, of, for example, vaccines to immunize uh, against new forms. It's something that could be you know, potentially horrific. But again, this is the challenge where from where we sit today, we don't know. We just don't know, and and I think that's sort of what your one of your uh, one of your points there is that that uncertainty creates this significant headwind, which is why you question uh, the, the the necessity uh, of even having the taper conversation. By the way, I could imagine a future where there is a chair Dale who's running the Fed. Why not? <laughs> I appreciate that, my friend. Um, if I can make one final comment, you, you mentioned the uncertainty that is a significant uh, a headwind. I think the uncertainty being a significant headwind is already largely priced into markets. Again, you have so much implied volatility premium across most sectors and style factors in the equity market, meaning people are overpaying for options, for put options relative to the recent realized volatility because they're afraid. And they've been rolling those put options very consistently throughout the summer because they're afraid of things like Delta. They're afraid of the taper. They're afraid. Investors aren't taking a lot of risk right now. And that to me is what insulates the downside of the market. If, if you told me that we had implied volatility discounts and we had a Goldilocks market regime that was being confirmed by the overwhelming preponderance of the assets in our global macro risk monitor, I would get on this show and say, I think the market's going to crash 20%. But I, I won't. I won't because there's not what I can observe quantitatively. And again, I'm not saying our process is perfect. No one, no one's is. However, what I can observe quantitatively, people are not over their ski tips 
in terms of leverage and risk, which means the market is not about to have this meaningful correction, or yeah. in my opinion. Let me throw this back to you. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. You know, we talk about the obviously the case uh, for withdrawing liquidity in the event of inflation being something that's very much in the playbook, something that the Fed knows how to do very well. Obviously, Paul Volcker very famously did it in the uh, first term of the Reagan administration. But what of those who say, look, we can always talk about the fact that it can be done, but we begin to live in this almost Lewis Carroll through the looking glass universe where the rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday, but never jam today. It's always the taper will come and we can do it and don't worry about it, but we never get there. It's like waiting for Godot. It is. I mean, the, the, I think that's a better outcome than the one we're sort of on the, the, the we're on the trolley track, when the Disneyland trolley tracks now, <laughs> like we're just creating towards a, a taper, a Q4 taper, because we, we need to, just so we can finish by the end of 22, so we can hike interest rates in Q1 of 23. Like, what is the point of all that? Like, I don't, does, does anybody believe the Fed's forecast for 2023? I sure as hell don't. <laughs> I mean, like, what, these people don't know anything about next week, let alone the next several quarters. And so I think it's, it's you know, they're, as much as they are data dependent, the conversations that they're having don't sound extremely data dependent to me. It sounds like they just want to get on with this tapering discussion and start the taper just so they can high five each other's around the Eccles building and say, hey, we did it. We got this thing started. And look, and we're going to normalize policy. Central bankers love normalizing policy. And the reason they love normalizing policy is because it gives them ammunition to do a lot more stuff the next time we have an economic or market downturn. And so to me, I think that may be part of the discussion as well. Um, obviously, the market's up over 100% from where, you know, bottom last March. And so maybe they're looking at the stock market and saying, like, you know, like the Bernanke Fed did, Yellen Fed did a little bit less. But certainly the Bernanke Fed, Russell 2000 and S&P 500 were the only things that, that I assumed he looked at. Because you could tell, you could, you could literally write his speeches based on what the recent developments in the stock market. And I'm, I'm concerned uh, that, that, you know, some of the guys like Bullard and Clarita are actually overreacting uh, to what we're seeing in asset prices. Boy, you just said something incredibly interesting. You talk about why central bankers like to normalize the idea that they have more policy action once they withdraw. It's almost mm -hmm. like in, in uh, military engagement, once you throw in the reserves, you got nothing left. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, does that also imply kind of a risk? We've, we've heard people talk on this program and others at Real Vision about the risk of uh, the Fed running out of bullets to put in the gun. Uh, is there just a, a limitless armory of more things that they can do? I mean, I think the answer to that is probably yes, but maybe the real question is, then what are the implications for the continuing finding new policy actions progressively more and more unconventional with every turn? So the, for me, the implications have less to do with the Fed itself and more to do with what is fiscal policy doing alongside it. Because in this post-GFC uh, world, where the Fed was really the only game in town prior to COVID, the Fed has an unlimited amount of supply because it's the way it creates money does not wind up in the real economy. It winds up in asset prices. And so they, they, they can do an infinite amount of QE, an infinite amount of um, you know, asset purchases and, and various programs and asset swaps and, and, and currency swaps. They can do whatever they want when, when it's, it's this sort of kind of constrained fiscal policy dynamic that we're you know, used to seeing in DC in the post-crisis era. However, in this sort of new world where we're jamming reconciliation through the roof or through you know through you know jamming it through the, the pipes of ha the halls of congress you know from both sides of the aisle by the way populism has become quite popular in this country for uh, both republicans and democrats because the reality is a lot of those families on both sides of that aisle were left poor after the gfc 
And because of that, you know, we, we can unpack that as well. Because of that, you're seeing a willingness to blow holes in the budget deficit that we had not seen prior to COVID. And if that if that if that willingness, it's abating at the margin, but if that willingness remains there or for the foreseeable future, what I would argue it likely will, um, if that's the case, then the Fed can't do as much because the Fed is then financing the U.S. government indirectly or you know whatever, however you want to call it. And they're financing U.S. and the real money creation in the real economy. And that does lead to uh, consumer price inflation, um, you know, all, all throughout the wazoo, as, we, Jerry, as we've seen this year. I can't speak for the Fed, but you remain data dependent and you remain data driven, which is one of the things that I think is so interesting about this. Uh, and this conversation is that you can't be put into a very easy ideological box. You are looking at the data. You're saying, I don't see why we should withdraw uh, from the taper, but simultaneously, basically some some fairly hawkish comments there about the risk of direct debt monetization uh, and using fiscal policy to deliver helicopter money uh, with the uh, with the the cooperation of the Fed. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. And and so this to me takes me to the the conversation in DC that I alluded to earlier. DC is kind of this weird dynamic that I think a lot of investors, including myself, are having a difficult time handicapping because on one hand, it could be extremely bullish over the next few months. If we hit the debt ceiling and Jenny Yellen has to you know, do, do the extraordinary measures to keep the, the party going, um, to keep the government finance through October and early to part of November, then there's going to be no treasury supply. That's still going to be buying $120 billion or somewhere thereabouts a month. And you're going to have an incredibly awesome dynamic from a net liquidity perspective. But you could also see coming out of D.C. because of Kristen Sinema, because of Joe Manchin, because of you know, sort of, you know, moderate Democrats and Republicans on both sides of the aisle. You could also see the the Biden uh, budget resolution go from 3.5 trillion to something looking like 2.25 or 2.5 trillion pretty quickly. I mean, that you know, the total amount of debt that 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 budget resolution, or at least the, the draft, uh, is outlined to uh, add to the deficit over the next 10 years is 1.75 trillion. That might be the ultimate size of the haircut. I mean, so we don't know. There's like a, a very extreme bear case. There's a very extreme bull case for the next couple of months. I'm inclined to lean towards the bull case, if only because our global macro risk majors is now casting Goldilocks from a market regime perspective. That could change. Um, and if that does change, we'll, we'll obviously let, let our customers know at 42 Macro. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Darius, you're always trying to thread the needle between the Scylla and Charybdis, which I admire greatly. <laughs> These are very complicated topics, obviously, that we're talking about now. But I want to throw back to the Fed here uh, because Gabrielle Hughes at Real Vision picked out a great clip. Uh, an interview that Jack Farley had with Annika Tran uh, from uh, Van Schott Kempen uh, that talks about some of these issues. Let's take a look at that clip right now. As I said, over the last 10 years, investors, markets have been following central banks. I found it remarkable what happened at the beginning of the year, the first three months of the year. The first three months of the year were the first time in a very, very long time, maybe, well, in decades, let's say, where bond markets started revolting against central banks. We've not seen this before. In the beginning of the year, Powell was saying, hey guys, you know, we're still far away from our inflationary target. We're not budging at all on rates. Obviously a lot happened since then. We're talking beginning of the year. Yet bond markets were moving rapidly. 
So in only six weeks time at the beginning of the year, you saw yields on 10 years go from 1% to 1.5% in six weeks, whilst Powell kept repeating over and over again, we're not raising rates, you know, inflation isn't coming. And that's interesting. And there's plenty of examples, sort of little snippets you can zoom into, which sort of go to show that markets are starting to question the leadership role of central banks. And I think more importantly, central banks themselves are actually choosing to become less proactive because being proactive has been painful. Well, that's an uh, interview is available on the Real Vision Essential tier uh, in its entirety if you'd like to take a look. I was struck, Darius, by her thesis there uh, that basically markets have followed central banks for decades, uh, but only recently, for the first time in decades, have we started to see a revolt against central banks. Uh, she talks about the US T10, the 10-year US Treasury uh, yield jumping from uh, 1.0 to 1 spot 7, uh, 70 basis points jump in several weeks. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I respectfully disagree with her conclusion because when you study sort of the, at least again in the, the, in the post-crisis era, when, you, when the Fed is typically doing QE, it's usually in response to a market and an economic event. You know, at least in the past couple of decades, market and economic events have been correlated. Uh, and so the Fed is typically doing QE during the recovery. The one, I would argue, it's, it's helping facilitate the recovery through the lens of credit intermediation and, and you know, providing liquidity to, to asset markets. But it's also a lagging indicator. The Fed's reaction function is a reaction function. And so, you know, I, I, again, I wouldn't necessarily go too far with this comment, but I, I, and I, I do respectfully disagree with that, that, that statement. Yeah, fair enough. Darius, can we jump in here and do a quick speed round? We got some great questions, and I know we're running out of time. But I'd love to hear you real quick on a couple of these points. Uh, the first one, boy, this one comes to us from Achilles. This really is the this really is the uh, sixty four trillion dollar question, which is uh, how does Fed reducing monthly purchases of MBS affect equities? Well, you, once you clog, I mean, the, so the Fed the Fed is providing an awful lot of liquidity for financial markets. And creating money for people who don't who don't have anywhere else to go with the money, and so they look for replacement securities, and that that there's a chain of that activity that filters all the way down into the you know the, the tightest parts of the or the sort of the most risky parts of the credit market or the most you know speculative equities. So the Fed just toning down on large scale asset purchases slows down the maturity of bonds. It slows down the taking out of bonds from the legacy system. This is why debt is so deflationary. Because so much of our money that we're creating economically from the profits of enterprises for you know from consumers working and, and, and getting paid get, goes to service and amortize that debt. But well, if the Fed can take that debt and retire the debt, you can create cash that then can be lent to, to consumers and businesses. It typically it doesn't, but most of it just winds up you know flowing into, into other asset markets. So um, you know that's that's how that could potentially sort of you know uh, catalyze uh, uh, some risk off uh, flavoring in the, in the equity market. Yeah, here's a nice short one for the speed round. This comes to us from Sean. Darius, what assets do you purchase in your deflation quadrant? Oh, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, deflation is when growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. So you want to be defensive. Um, you want to be long duration risk. So that's treasury bonds. That's gold. Uh, the dollar tends to strengthen meaningfully uh, when you're in that in that grid regime. And then within the context of the equity market, you know, you want to be in defensive sectors and style factors. That's Consumer staples, utilities, um, you know, sort of, you know, I would argue half the REITs, not there's certain REITs that are more cyclical than others. Healthcare REITs tend to be less cyclical, so it sort of towers. And then you obviously have your mega cap thing type names with a lot less cyclicality in their earnings and cash flow streams than the average company. 
And so that, you know, you, you want to reduce your exposure to high beta and cyclicality uh, when you're in, you know, in a slowing in the growth and inflation environment. And that's exactly what the market's done. I mean, the high beta has just been on a complete drawdown from relative to low beta, despite the fact that the market itself is just, just off its all-time high. You're seeing the same thing with the value relative to growth. You're seeing the same thing with small caps relative to the mega caps. For the past two months, under if all you saw was the S&P 500 price, you'd say, oh, my God, this is a raging bull market. But for two months in a row, we've seen a pretty persistent crowding into defensive sectors and style factors through the lens of our, our sharp ratio dispersion analysis. By the way, we've just gotten ping pong on style factors and on our rotation. It's just been like faster than you can keep up with. It's wild. Well, it, that's, a, that's a phenomenal question. And I was just about to unpack that. And part of the reason for this is we're going from extreme to extreme in terms of our expectations for the recovery from the pandemic, the fit incremental fiscal policy, the timing of Fed tapering. These are all major catalysts. Yeah. And the reality is we're not getting act any actual clarity on the catalyst, but we're getting incremental news on the catalyst. And that news is causing not necessarily broad market risk, but it's causing a tremendous amount of money to change hands between cyclical sectors and style factors and defensive sectors and style factors. And even in the fixed income market, it's causing a tremendous amount of money to change hands between duration risk, you know, the, the long end of the treasury curve and, you know, credit risk, triple C's and, and high yield of that and things of that nature. Boy, that's perfectly said and so well described and a phenomenon that we've been witnessing here and just gives you really the core elements of exactly what's going on. I know we're running out of time, but I want to try and get in just two more quick questions. We've got so many good ones here. Uh, this one comes to us from William. What is, uh, let me just paraphrase it. William's curious about uh, the influence that tapering will have on the mortgage market, on mortgage rates, and on housing prices. Yes, I would argue if they're tapering into a slowdown, you could actually see rates decline. Um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not too familiar with the dynamics within the mortgage market currently um, in terms of the supply demand willingness for you know, investors to chase that. Um, but if, 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 we're, if we're in an economic environment, uh, the one we project starting in September, you know, persisting through at least the first quarter of next year, is where growth and inflation is trending lower, bond yields, the natural uh, sort of the, 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 the path of least resistance for bond yields is lower, not higher. And so, you know, the, that, that to me is the, 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 the catalyst. I think when investors talk about, okay, the two, 10 years got to be at 2% by year end, I think they're saying that with an implicit assumption or bias that the economy is continuing to reopen and growth is continuing to accelerate. But the reality is, is we, we created an artificial hump in the trajectory of economic growth as a function of the fiscal stimulus that we saw not only last year, you know, sort of the end of last year, but also um, towards the end of Q1 of this year. There's so much demand we jammed into the economy. So now that we have this sort of Delta variant news popping up, it's not necessarily having a huge impact on, on, on policy, on public health policy, but it certainly could have a huge impact on creating this vacuum between peak consumer goods demand, retail sales, and actual services consumption. We never really truly get back to peak services consumption or all the pent up services demand that we had, you know, we're going to travel and go everywhere this summer, you know, doesn't necessarily come to fruition. Listen, Darius, I know we have to wrap. There's this one here question here that I think is just great. I wanted to get to it before we left. Uh, this one comes to us from Adam, uh, Adam from New Jersey, my home state. Uh, and he wants you to talk, Darius, a little bit, if you could, about the option market, the options market driving the direction of the broader stock market in the short term. This is something I'm fascinated by. Sometimes it feels like the cart is driving the horse. What are your thoughts on derivatives impact on equity markets? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly difficult to quantify if you don't sit in those seats, you know, in terms of the dealer float network seats. Uh, but I certainly have a few proxies that we look at to identify where, you know, where the tail is wagging the dog, so to speak. And so you start with saying, hey, we have this massive equity market that we have an entire insurance business, entire insurance industry that is, is, is creating structured products around that. And so those structured products need uh, use a tremendous amount of derivatives to sort of create those sort of artificial returns and, and lock in, um, um, you know, sort of uh, floors and things of that nature for those uh, for those products. And so that becomes, you know, the dealer hedging associated with all that, i.e. if you buy a put, the dealers have to go out and hedge so they're not short gamma the entire time. And that, and so if you don't realize that volatility, the dealers have to cover those hedges. You know, that, and that, you know, the puts expire, they get rolled and the dealers cover their hedges or the dealers uh, reshort higher and things of that nature. I think that's probably what's going on a little bit this week. We saw that um, in the middle of July as well. Um, you know, so there's a lot of tail wagging the dog, but ultimately the market, people, the market will go in the direction of the economy. All the best, po most positive returns happen when the, 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 we're in one of the two positive risk on grid regimes. When you're in Goldilocks, that's the best one. That's where growth's accelerating and inflation's decelerating. And then the second best grid regime from an annualized expected value, volatility, covariance perspective is when growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. When you're, when you're below, and I'll tweet, that, tweet out the chart after the show, when you're below the horizontal line in the economy from a grid regime perspective, you tend not to have positive returns. And so the only thing that can really perpetuate positive returns in the stock market is that hedging activity and that unhedging activity associated with the, with those options. So that's how you get the tail wagging the dog feature in, in the stock market. Yeah, you know, Darius, I was about to ask you to wrap up and give us some final thoughts, but man, that's a big one, right? This notion that ultimately markets, especially U.S. equity markets, follow the directionality of the U.S. economy. There's no such thing as a free lunch, um, even when Fed uh, and other central banks continue to be accommodative. Such an important point there. As we get to the close here, give us some final thoughts. Contextualize what we've seen today uh, from the Fed. I know you said it was like watching paint dry, but what's changed, if anything, at the margin, and how do you contextualize it? Yeah, so I, I don't think anything's changed. I think we're still on this path towards a September tapering announcement. Um, it's you know just given the the commentary that we've observed in the last couple of weeks. So the dates to highlight there: you got Jackson Hole on the 26th to 28th of this month. You have the uh, August jobs report on the third. If that looks a little bit like the July jobs report is probably uh, the tapering announcement we're going to get at the uh, FOMC statement on, on the 22nd of September. Um, if we don't get it then, I, I, then we're going to get it on November 3rd, surely. And then uh, the, the following meeting, December 15th, that's when I actually expect them to start tapering, just again, based on reading the tea leaves from all their commentary. Now, do I agree with that? Absolutely not. I think it's a very unnecessary. I think we're on a very unnecessary path uh, towards tightening monetary policy, uh, at least in the current you know, next few months. Um, that is what it is, and we just have to respond to that as investors. But I'd say the number one thing to take away from here is that amid all the uncertainty and the fear out there, you have to remember that everyone else is fearful and uncertain as well. And so the positioning, just in my opinion, is just not there for the market to have a real meaningful market event. Now, it might get there at some point over the next few weeks or months, and that's when we'll hop on you know, the Real Vision Daily Briefing and, and call that out. But for now, we just don't see it. Yeah, Darius, always a pleasure to have you here on the Real Vision Daily Briefing, but especially on a day like today when Fed minutes drop. Appreciate you, Ash. Thank you so much. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for watching, everybody, and thanks for participating.
you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.